Hello and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well at this time. I'm so delighted to say that today we will be speaking with acclaimed writer Jennifer Higgy on the groundbreaking Suzanne Valadon. But before we start, I'm so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, a collection inspired by Dante Alighieri's divine comedy with each piece corresponding to one of the poet's 100 poems. You can visit their work at www www.alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners they are offering a 10% discount across all their fantastic products with the code TGWA at checkout. Each week their founder Rosh Matani will be giving us an insight into Alighieri and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm so excited to let you all know that our new collection The Many Moons Ago is now available to purchase on alighieri.co.uk. I wanted to tell you a little bit about one of my favourite pieces from the collection, the Lunar Rocks earrings. In the second circle of Dante Alighieri's Paradiso, the poet arrives in the magical sphere of the moon, where light and serenity abound. After months of darkness, the many moons ago collection looks to the light of this lunar sphere. The rocky texture of these hoops are a depiction of the moon's surface, little craters immortalised in time. The terrain of the moon, whilst uneven and craggy, is an ode to the beauty of imperfection. The lunar rocks hoops are designed as an everyday reminder to embrace the difficult moments and the light that they often do bring. Hello everyone and welcome to The Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the highly esteemed and world-renowned Australian-born and London-based writer Jennifer Higgy. Previously the editor of Freeze, Higgy is now editor-at-large of the magazine and presents her fantastic podcast, Bow Down, all about women in art history. The author and illustrator of the children's book, There's Not One, the editor of The Artist's Joke, and the author of the novel Bedlam, Higgy is also a writer of screenplays and countless phenomenal essays of contemporary artists, including most recently some of my favourites on Lisa Bryce and Jade Farajatimi. She has been a judge on the Turner Prize, the Paul Hamlin Award, and a member of the advisory boards of the Arts Council England, the British Council Venice Biennale Commission, the Contemporary Art Society, the Imperial War Museum Art Commission's Committee, and Tate, etc. Last year, she was also a judge on the John Moores Painting Prize, and she is currently on the jury for the Freelands Painting Prize 2021. 
Higgy is also currently working on a highly anticipated book, which I definitely cannot wait to read, The Other Side, Women, Art and Spirituality. But the reason why we are speaking with her today is because she has just released a fantastic book on women's self-portraits, The Mirror and the Palette, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. The book takes us through journeys of women artists' lives and how they have immortalised themselves through self-portraits, one of which is of the Parisian avant-garde painter Suzanne Valadon, which particularly caught my eye. The rebellious, forthrighteous, groundbreaking painter known for her powerful nudes of both men and women, as well as self-portraits, who is very excitingly the artist who we are going to be discussing today. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. How are you doing today? Oh, very well, Katie. And thank you so much for that very generous and, and kind introduction. It's great to be here. Well, so fantastic to have you on and congratulations on the book. And it's such an honour to speak to you. It's just remarkable, this book. It takes us through so many different stories of women, from Gwen John to Alice Neal to Paula Modison Becker, Sophonis Bangasola, Lois Milo Jones. I just absolutely loved it. But one artist I was totally fascinated by was Suzanne Valadon, whose work feels so groundbreaking, relevant, strong, so visually electric electric and contextually so powerful. She was born in just outside of Paris in 1865, lived until 1938, so really kind of embraced, documented and lived through the height of the Parisian avant-garde, yet like so many women artists, has not been given the rightful recognition she deserves. So I want to get into her life in a moment, but mm. I first just love to start by asking you, when and how did you first come across Suzanne Valadon? Well, I can't remember the exact moment, but I think it might have been probably in a Parisian museum. And she was someone I knew because she was such a famous model. She appeared in some of the era's most famous paintings. She was a star of Puvis de Chavannes, The Grove Sacred to the Arts, and Renoir's The Large Bathers, and The Dance at Bougival, and Girl Braiding Her Hair, and Toulouse-Lautrec's The Hangover. She was depicted as everything from like a cocotte to like a sour-faced drunk. You know, she was this amazing actress in a way, in terms of how she was represented. And then I somehow came across, I have no memory of anything. I've got an appalling memory. So I can't remember the exact <laughs> moment when, when I came across her. But I think what's so incredibly interesting about Suzanne Valadon, I mean, there are many things that are interesting, but yeah. one of the sort of consistent stories of women in the past is that often they had a leg up because their father was an artist. And also many of them tended to be from fairly privileged backgrounds because this is how you had access to a studio, to learning, to, you know, when they're barred from the academy, they had to have other ways of learning how to become an artist. But Suzanne Valadon is born Marie Clementine Valadon. She was illegitimate. She never knew her father. Her mother was a washerwoman. She never had any access to any training. She was working from the age of 10 or 12. And she had an amazing array of jobs. She made wreaths. She sold vegetables. She waitressed. She washed dishes. She worked as a stable hand. She was an acrobat. You know, she had these incredible background. And then she became an yeah. artist because she was growing up in, uh, rather, she became a model because she was in Montmartre. And obviously so many models were living there and a friend of hers was a model. And so she slipped into becoming an artist through the back door. And many of her contemporaries, like many of the impressionist women artists, you know, they all came from very well-off backgrounds. And so Suzanne just started painting from this sort of life urge that she had to dabble in everything. And she was extremely gifted. And she was supported by Edgar Degas. But one of the many things that I love about her work is that she was one of the rare female artists of, of her generation to depict women naked and bathing, which was very unusual for the time. But they're never eroticized. They're yeah. always working women who are tired, they're comfortable in their skin, 
their washing. And I, there's such a deep compassion in her work for how hard so many women's lives are. And I think that was what initially attracted me to her. Absolutely. No, I mean, I, I think her work is just captivating and it is kind of like nothing I've ever seen before, especially of that era. And that's why I feel almost cheated from my art historical you know, education when I was younger to not come across her because also just stylistically, she fits into that moment and she's being so groundbreaking contextually, but also she's adopting Fauvism, Impressionism, Cubism. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Her palette is often seen as a sort of expressionist palette. You know, it's incredibly vivid and bold colours and strong lines, but she really was, I think, um, more than anything, enthralled to Impressionism. And the fact that she taught herself how to paint, really, through observing the artists that she was modelling yeah. for is really extraordinary. And, you know, some of the artists who, who she worked for did help her. She became really good friends and was really supported by Toulouse-Lautrec, who eventually introduced her to Degas, who bought the first work that she ever sold. But, you know, some of the other people that she worked for were pretty awful. Like Renoir famously said, I think of women who are writers, lawyers and politicians as monsters, mere freaks, and the woman artist is just as ridiculous. You know, so she was in this milieu where she had to learn art on many levels in quite a subversive way. You know, you can imagine her modelling for some of Renoir's most famous paintings and her eyes darting around thinking, how is he mixing paint and and is he doing a sketch beforehand and how does he do an underpainting, you know? And I I love that about her. She was so alive, you know, she really was. She was great. She was an adventurous. She famously said about herself when she was... um, a young person and you know her ambition was to be an acrobat and she said I thought too much I was haunted I was a devil I was a boy and she had a terrible tumble as an acrobat and was really yeah. badly damaged her yeah. back if that hadn't happened she might not have become a painter she might have spent the rest of her days in the circus you know I don't think you can say that of many painters at the time <laughs> I love that she had this kind of backdoor entrance mm. to the art world. I yeah. Know. I mean, also, you know, learning really with the best as well. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the artists who she was surrounded by. But but it seems that Toulouse-Lautrec, even though, you know, he was an aristocrat and he was a famous bon vivant and slept he? around. Yeah. He was really <laughs> supportive of her. You know, he gave her Nietzsche to read and stuff. You know, he was always lending her books. And he was the one. It was Toulouse-Lautrec who called her Suzanne, interestingly. That's a good story. Yeah which we'll get to in a moment. I mean, I'd just love to ask you as well, is there a particular painting that you were first drawn to and how it makes you feel? I mean, the more I looked into her life, I sort of fell in love with pretty much everything she painted. But I think (laughs) some of her self-portraits are really extraordinary. You know, she looked at herself with an unflinching gaze and she started doing self-portraits from quite an early age. And when she was modelling, when she was sleeping around, when she was drinking in Montmartre, you know, she depicts herself in a very dignified and very restrained manner. When she gets older, she depicts herself, you know, in her 60s with her wrinkles, with her frown, with her graying hair. She was never coy about herself or the aging process, you know, and she was a great beauty and I'm sure that she was extremely charismatic. But she didn't always depict herself as a great beauty. She depicted herself as a woman who was working incredibly hard and who had quite a shit life in many ways. (laughs) But, you know, she then... She always rose above it. And even when she depicts herself as sort of worn out, there's still something heroic about her. So I do love her self-portraits. But I think one of my favourite paintings of hers is the Blue Room. Oh, yeah. Which was the first painting that she sold to, to a French museum. And she painted that in 1923. 
and she depicts a model in green and white striped pajamas and a pink chemise who is lounging on her bed smoking a cigarette. There's a blue bedspread. There's an autumnal backdrop. She's gazing into the distance. She's wrapped up in her thoughts. But one of the really brilliant and groundbreaking things about this painting, I think, is that, you know, this is one model, a very, very famous model, the most famous model in Paris, who's painting another model, and she's really dignifying her. This girl is modeling, she's smoking, she's lounging around on her bed, but she's surrounded by books. She's got a red and a yellow book next to her. And, you know, Suzanne, the former model, makes clear that the subject of her painting is not simply a compositional device or a sexy woman. She's got an inner life too. You know, she's reading. (laughs) And, you know, I think, yeah. it's, I think it's an amazing painting and I get the chills whenever I see it. And it, It's now in the collection of the Musée National d'Art <gasps> in Paris. It's brilliant. So I've actually never seen this work in real life, but I've seen so many images of it. How big is this work? It's not that big. It's about one metre by almost two metres. So it's quite an intimate scale for a, a full body study. And and I always think that about Suzanne Valadon, that her work is very human scale. Totally. I mean, this work, the Blue Room, I mean, you wouldn't, I remember when I first came across it, it was years ago when I was doing Great Women Artists in the early days. And just being totally captivated by this kind of kaleidoscopic colour, but also how modern this woman looked. I mean, you don't often get images of women in 1923 looking like this. I mean, the Mm. fact that she is reading as well, but the book's kind of been kicked to the back of the bed Mm. and she's just doing whatever the hell she wants. She's got these kind of stripy trousers on and she's got a cigarette in mouth and she almost looks, I mean, quote unquote, man's clothes or whatever, because I can imagine in the sort of 1920s, this was probably quite unusual. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that's one of the really radical gestures that Suzanne Valadon makes in this picture. And also yeah. the fact that the model is clothed as well. I mean, Suzanne was not coy about nudity. You know, she often yeah. painted, she very rare for the time, you know, she she painted her bare breasts, you yeah. know. She, but she was in her 60s. Yeah. And she painted, you know, her young lover, who was her son's best friend, oh, who yes. was 21 years younger than. The electrician. Yeah, the electrician. And she painted him as Adam. And she originally painted him with his penis in all its glory, you know, but she actually was, <laughs> she was forced to paint the fig leaf over it because no one would show it. So it's not that she's coy about nudity, but with this picture, she's really dignifying the model. And I think that's, you know, the model paints the model. And I think this hadn't happened before. I mean, there was one other famous model artist in Paris, and that was uh, Victorine Muron, but she was 20 years older than Suzanne. And so there was literally no one who was Suzanne's age, who was working class, who was a model, who was painting in a really radical and groundbreaking way. And I think this painting, The Blue Room, is such a, a celebration of a woman's power. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, you mentioned earlier, Suzanne Valadon was actually born Marie Clementine Valadon, mm. please excuse my French accent, no. <laughs> in 1865. She was impoverished, born out of wedlock to a seamstress and a cleaning woman mother. I mean, talk to us about her childhood. I mean, where did she grow up and where was she raised? Her mother was a laundress and gave birth to, as she was then, Marie Clementine in 1865 in a village not far from Paris. But because of the scandal of her birth, she never knew her father. Oh, wow. Her mother moved to the centre of Bohemian France, which, of course, was Montmartre. And, you know, it must have been such an amazing place at that time. If I could time travel, I would love to go there then. Because most of Paris below the hill was being knocked down in house modernization, in making the grand boulevards and knocking down medieval Paris. But Montmartre remained untouched. And essentially, it was a village that floated above Paris. And it was full of winding little alleys and bars and cafes and artist studios. And all the artists loved it. And so this is where Marie Clementine 
grew up. Yeah. And what was also, I think, really radical about her childhood is that all of the other female artists, America Sats and the other Impressionists, you know, when they were growing up, they were posh. And so they had chaperones all the time. But Marie Clementine, she ran yeah. wild. You know, she Montmartre <laughs> was her was her playground. So yes. she had from the ages of about 10 and 12. I think that it's quite hazy when she was very little, but apparently she was kicked out of a convent school for being oh, too wild. So she started <laughs> earning a living. As mentioned, she was making wreaths, she was sewing, she was selling vegetables, she was waitressing, she was washing dishes, she was working as a stable hand. Oh my gosh. Um, and she was also apparently from a very early age, she was making drawings on anything she could find, you know, and often that wasn't paper because wow. she couldn't afford paper. Yeah. And there's... Um, Walls a, and things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was a contemporary report of her that she was described as a wild, tiny figure bobbing along on a horse's back, executing handstands, headstands, somersaults. Yeah salts and cartwheels so she was a real character and I think that's putting it very mildly yeah and so she worked for six months because her big ambition was to become an acrobat at the Cirque Fernando which was Montmartre's yep. permanent circus but when she fell from a trapeze at the age of 15 Ooh. her focus turned to art and initially with the help of her friend Clelia who was also a model um, from 1880 to 1893 she posed for artists including Pierre Puvis de Chavan, Renoir, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec and others. And so how was she then perceived in painting? I mean the difference between someone like Renoir's The Large Bathers and then Toulouse-Lautrec's The Hangover. Exactly I mean you know I, I have a suspicion that if Suzanne Valadon hadn't become a painter, she could have become a great actress because yeah. she obviously was very popular with all the artists because she could assume all of these different roles. So in Puvis de Chavannes, the gross sacred to the arts and muses, you know, she's like um, a sub-deity from ancient Greece. In Renoir's A Large Bailey, she's like as lush as a marshmallow. Yes. She's curvy and, and naked and smiling and coquettish and, you know, she's young and beautiful and fresh and innocent. And then as as you mentioned in Toulouse-Lautrec's The Hangover. And remember, he was her really good friend too. So I think they went out on the lash yeah. quite quite a bit. You know, so he'd, he'd, probably, <laughs> he'd probably seen her with a hangover more than once and she, she looks really grumpy. And that to me is a really affectionate painting in a funny way because he's painting and her. relatable in a strange way. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's painting his friend. He's got a really bad headache. So um, <laughs> she could assume all of these different roles. And it's it's really interesting if you go from one painting to another and, and see all the different ways that she is represented in these pictures. You know, she was quite a chameleon. Absolutely, absolutely. I love the fact that she's enjoying this life at the sort of the height of the Paris avant-garde. And I think of someone like Bert Morisot and the paintings that she was making at the time and sort of really being confined to space and only really seeing the window as mm. you know your freedom. And then you have someone like Valadon who's just embracing this life and is just living it. I mean, what was she like as a woman? Do we know about stories about her from the sort of 1880s? Oh, yes. We know lots of stories about her. <laughs> and so I think she was quite sexually active from quite an early age. Um, she haunted every bar there was, and she was outrageous too. You know, there are stories about her sliding down banisters naked, <gasps> entering entering oh nightclubs in a cart yeah. pulled by a donkey. You know, she <laughs> she was first on the dance floor. She was fun. Yeah. And, of course, she herself had an illegitimate child at the age of 18. And this child was to become the artist who during her lifetime actually became more famous than her. It was Maurice Utrillo. But it's interesting looking at her son's paintings because they're much tamer than hers. You know, he tended to do often quite saccharine paintings of Montmartre that sold really well, but he became 
very rich woman. And, you know, so it was considered, even though she was moving in extremely bohemian circles, it was considered a problem that she had an illegitimate child. It meant that she couldn't be in the company of respectable women. And so her boyfriend, Miguel Utrello, who was a Spanish writer, he took responsibility for her son and said that he was the father so that the child wouldn't be illegitimate. Whether or not he was the father, we're not sure. It could have just been a friendly gesture, <laughs> you know, to, so that she would be considered respectable. So he assumed uh, the, the role of the father and gave Maurice his surname. That's why he's Maurice Utrillo. Oh, okay. But before she got married, and, you know, we'll, we'll get on to that, one of her famous relationships, I mean, she probably did have a romantic relationship as well with Calusa Trek, but I think it was more like um, friends with benefits. <laughs> but she did have famously, and I do love this story, she had the only relationship that the composer Eric Satie ever, ever had with a woman. Amazing. And they would were, were totally joined at the hip for um, not very long. And in 1892, she painted a wonderful portrait of Eric Satie. And his skin is this sort of pinkish green. His, his lips are cherry red. His hat, he's sloppy. He's got these small round glasses and a frock coat and a white collar and messy it's hair. It's very German expressionist, that It work. is, actually. It, uh, you know, in some ways, that reminds me a bit of Paula Modison Becker's portrait of the poet Rilke. Yeah. But, you know, he looks a bit like a, yes. a slightly bonkers vicar, Eric Satie. And, you know, <laughs> and... So. They apparently got on really well. And he proposed marriage to Suzanne with, and there's this beautiful description of, of what he wrote to her when he proposed. He said, I breathe with caution a little at a time and I dance very rarely. And you know, I love that this is him trying to sell himself. And he gave her absurd gifts, including a, a necklace of sausages and a bag filled with in his words, the wonderful smells of the world. And what they really loved doing was sailing boats at the Luxembourg Gardens. But the problem was, he was as poor as she was. And she had a child to look after. I mean, I remember reading a biography of Satie, and, and he was so broke that he was living with a friend who was also a pianist, and they had to share a pair of trousers. And so, <laughs> so they were both playing piano in a nightclub and so one of them would have to stay at home in his underpants and the other would go out and in the trousers and play come back hand over the trousers and then the other one would go out and play so they, oh he wasn't in any position really to offer support to, to Suzanne Valadon and her child although he, he really was in love with her he wrote to her that everywhere I see only your exquisite eyes your gentle hands and your little child's feet and he decorated his letter with a coat of arms oh. that translates it as eagle, I cannot be, turkey, I deign not to be, chicken, I am. So even though he was very honest <laughs> with her, it's actually not very surprising that after six months of this love affair, Suzanne left Sati for a very wealthy stockbroker, Paul Moussis, who she married in 1896. And, and this was the first time in her life that she actually had financial security and she was able to paint. But there is a sort of a postscript to this story that uh, Sati was absolutely devastated and he never, as far as we know, had another love affair. And he pinned a lock of her hair to an announcement that he put in his window and he said in red and blue ink, my love affair with Suzanne Valadon ended on the Tuesday, the 20th of June. And that year he actually composed one of his best-known pieces of music, which is unsurprisingly called Vexations. Oh, wow. And it's, it's accompanied by the instruction, in order to play the theme 840 times in succession, it would be advisable to prepare oneself beforehand and in the deepest silence by serious <laughs> immobilities. And it was actually, unsurprisingly as well, 
It was never published or played, and it was made famous by John Cage in 1949. So they, you can oh, see a direct link that's between incredible. Suzanne Valadon to John Cage. Uh, I love that story. I love that. No, I just, I mean, when you think of someone like Eric Satie, you think that he would have been the most celebrated man in Paris. And Not it's just, at all. you know, when people are in their youth, obviously they're completely broken mm. <laughs> trying to make their way. But I mean, this is such an interesting part of her career. I mean, firstly, am I right in thinking that this is actually the moment that she changes the name to Suzanne? I mean, what's the story there? No, it was even earlier than that. It was before she went out with Paul Moussis. She was given the name by Toulouse Lautrec. Because at that time, everyone was calling her Maria. I mean, I think it's quite apt that she was someone who, who was a real chameleon. And so she seemed to go by all these names, from Marie Clementine to Maria. <laughs> so it was, it was Toulouse-Lautrec who called her Suzanne. And he called her Suzanne after the rather awful biblical story of Susanna and the Elders that Artemisia Gentileschi painted when she was 17. And so this is an absolutely awful story that this young woman, Susanna is bathing in her garden. She's naked. And these two dreadful old men come into her yeah. garden and say that if she doesn't sleep with them, then they will say that she is basically a slut and she will be shamed because she was married at the time. Anyway, it's a very long story, but she's saved by a young man who comes to her who realizes that these old men have played this awful blackmailing trick on her. And the old men end up being put to death, actually, and Susanna yeah. lives. But it's essentially a story of sexual harassment, horror, a young woman being dragged through the mud. And so Toulouse-Lautrec jokingly called Maria Susanna because she was obviously someone to whom scandal followed her around. But obviously she had a sense of humour about the whole thing and she loved being called Susanna <laughs> and then Suzanne and so she changed her name she even backdated some of her pictures she re-inscribed some of her pictures with the name Suzanne even though she wasn't till her I think it was in her early to mid-20s that she became Suzanne and so then she became known as Suzanne Moussis when she married this fancy stockbroker and they moved to the countryside and she very uncomfortably became a bourgeois wife. Oh gosh, I bet she didn't like that. Because before this, I guess the sort of early 1890s, because she married Paul in 1896. Mm. And so before that, was her career kind of kicking off at that point? Well, she didn't have a solo show until she was 46. So, and I think that's really yeah. important to remember. But she was becoming well-known as an artist. And she was in various group shows. She was supported by her artist group of friends, or as we've mentioned, by Toulouse Lautrec. And he introduced her to, and this was one of the most significant relationships in her life, to Edgar Degas, who was, of course, Amazing. the, you know, one of the great... Edgar Degas. He was Edgar <laughs> Degas. You know, he was one of the greatest artists of all time. And yeah. it was interesting because he was a very difficult man. He was by all accounts, um, very unpleasant in many ways. He was an anti-Semite, and despite the radicalism of his art, he was, he was very conservative. He moved in sort of elevated circles, and, you know, he wasn't a particularly nice fellow. But Toulouse-Lautrec introduced um, via some friends Suzanne Valadon to Edgar de Degas because Toulouse-Lautrec really believed in Suzanne's gifts as an artist and thought that he might be able to support her. And he became one of her great champions. And interestingly, Degas never called her Suzanne. Throughout his life, he only what? called her Maria. Yeah. So again, <laughs> this is so confusing. I know, it's, it's, it's so confusing. And so um, 
on the day that they met, she made her first sale. Degas was the first one to ever buy one of her drawings. He bought her drawing La Toilette of a girl getting out of the bath. And he eventually bought 26 of her drawings and prints. And legend has it that he told her on the very day that he met her, you are one of us. And she recalled that day I had wings, you know, and so this was a huge thing for her. Yeah. You know, this girl who was considered scandalous, who was a model, who slept with everyone, she was given the stamp of approval by Degas. And, you know, this really helped her. And so it meant that she started selling her work. Um, She started being included in various exhibitions. And she was included in major shows, actually, that not even Mary Cassatt was included in. So, you know, she was becoming well known. But at the same time, she still didn't have much money. She was supporting her mother, who was a laundress. She was supporting her child. And so at first, it was really brilliant that she had the financial support of Paul Moussis. And he really admired her as an artist. And she had a studio. But at the same time, she was expected to lead the life of a, a bourgeois wife. And it was interesting, in the years that she was married to him, even though she had every opportunity to paint, this was the least productive time of her life. And wow. it's one of those curious things that finally you're given financial freedom, but she was uncomfortable living this life. And it was in 1909, so she'd been married for 13 years, she fell in love with her son's best friend, who was Andre Uta. <laughs> He was 21 years. um, That sounds much more like her. Yes, exactly. 21 years younger (laughs) than Suzanne, her son's best friend. He was an electrician, a pretty ordinary artist. And so she ran away with Andre Uta. And she and Andre and Maurice, and Maurice at this time was having, her son was having terrible mental health problems, actually. He He had been an alcoholic from the age of 15. He was given to regular psychosis. And so the three of them, ran away, they left the bourgeois life and they went back to Paris, back to Montmartre. And then this is really when Suzanne took off. Because am I right to think that actually in 1909, she had made eight major works alone just in that year, not having produced much at all in the 13 years. Exactly. And a lot of these works were very erotic. You know, as mentioned earlier, she painted herself and Andre as Adam and Eve walking through the Garden of Eden and they're both naked and they're obviously delighting in each other's bodies. And She's definitely making herself very flattering. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think she's really exulting in, in her newfound erotic life. And her husband was furious, apparently. He came and threw everything out from his oh, house. God. They set up this studio, you know, they were drinking heavily. They were famous for the rows that they were having, which were often, I think Suzanne could give as good as she got. You know, I think probably she broke as much furniture as as the men did. (laughs) And, um, you know, they're carousing. But she entered one of the most prolific periods of her life. She was obviously extremely happy. And it's around this time that she's just painting, painting like mad. And it was two years later, at the age of 46 in 1911, that she has her first solo show at the Gallery du XXIe Siècle, you know, the gallery of the 20th century, which was run by a former clown called Clovis Sagot, you know. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So he was a clown. And, you know, I I do wonder if she... (laughs) This is perfect. Yeah. You know, so it's like the the acrobat and the clown come together in this this gallery. (laughs) And and he's a huge supporter of her work. And um, she's becoming very, very well known. So her style was in the ascendant. And also Maurice was painting a lot now and selling a lot as well. So they were supporting themselves by their art. And it was in the early 1920s that the art dealer Bernheim Jean, he offered to pay her and Maurice a million francs 
in order for them to paint an agreed amount of work. And so they accepted. Their work was selling across Europe. But Maurice, his health, mental health was really not good. And so in 1923, Suzanne decided to buy a chateau for all of them in St. Bernard, which was just north of Lyon, so that he would be away from the temptations of Montmartre. And it was, I mean, it just, you look at the photographs and it looked like this amazingly romantic place. It was this tumble down romantic place with, it had no running water or electricity, but it didn't matter as it was as they were so rich. And Suzanne filled the castle with flowers. They had a housekeeper. They had a chauffeur that she insisted oh only wore I bet white. She loved it. Yeah. So <laughs> the chauffeur only wore white. Wore white. Um, they fed their cats caviar on Fridays, uh, and she would like pay for crowds of Montmartre friends to visit on the weekend. So I'm not sure that oh, you know, leaving God. Montmartre really, really helped, you know, with with keeping Maurice away from temptation. And she became really famous for her extravagance. And there are these brilliant stories of her generosity, you know, because she knew what it was like to be poor. Yeah. When she caught the train, she always tipped the train driver. You know, she she sent 50 street oh. children to the circus. She paid for her butcher's wife to have a holiday on the Riviera. You know, so she was so she was so oh. much fun. I love her. I love her too. And I love her. I think I read that she also like sort of spent all her earnings on lavish fur coats and everything. I mean, she just must have yeah. looked absolutely incredible. And yeah. the epitome of the modern Parisian woman who was not only financially independent, but absolutely killing it as well. Yeah, exactly. She had a lot of fun with her money. But the problem was, as she grows older, Andre turned out to be a bit of a rat bag really. He was also really trying to become a painter. And apparently he was very jealous um, of Suzanne and Maurice's success. And he became quite violent. He destroyed some of her work and that of Maurice's. He was flaunting his young girlfriends. He even brought girlfriends back to the chateau. (gasps) You know, you really, I I, I think I've got it right that there was one story though, that Suzanne, who was never one to take these things lying down, she locked him and his girlfriend in a room for a weekend and wouldn't let them out. (gasps) But, you know, it really was hard. And and the problem was she was really in love with him. So it all gets a bit heartbreaking. Um, There is an amazing painting that she painted a bit earlier on than this called The Family, where she's got her old mother. She's got her boyfriend who became a husband, um, Andre, and she's got Maurice. And she's supporting all of them. And she's in the middle of them. She's the fulcrum that this family is, is spinning around. And um, she looks out at us and she's she's looking really tough. She's supporting all of them. Yeah. And although she was selling well, there was a lot of disapproval around her. You know, the exhibition 50 Years of French Painting was staged at the Louvre and it was curated by this awful critic, um, Louis Vossel, who believed that if women must paint, then their work should express refinement and sensibility. And he didn't include Suzanne's work in the show, even though she was making some of the most radical work at the time, because he thought she, that she was crude, that she was depicting women in all of their power and sexuality. He thought that her work was really coarse. So he wasn't covering her work either in the book that he published on French painting. So she's being written as is a story, as you know too well, Katie, you know, she's once again, like so many yes. women artists, <laughs> she's written out of the main narratives of art history because she's just too much for these men who want the women to be more refined. They want them to be more like Mary Cassatt and Bertha Morris, who were brilliant, brilliant artists. I'm not in any way putting them down, but yes. Suzanne had a sort of raw brilliance about her. And so when she died... She was feeling fairly 
pissed off with a lot of things. Andre had treated her pretty badly. Maurice had got married to this awful woman who wouldn't allow Maurice to see his mother. <gasps> oh, no. And um, in 1938, she was actually painting in her studio. And I think the last painting she was painting was another Adam and Eve, actually. Yeah. She had a stroke at her easel and she died later that day. And so she was buried at the Cimetière de Saint-Ouen in Paris. At her graveside was Georges Braque, Marc Chagall, André Durand, Pablo Picasso, but along with waiters, models, shopkeepers. Fantastic. The whole of Montmartre came to her funeral. You know, she was old Montmartre. And um, what was really sad was that Lucy, Maurice's awful wife, didn't allow him to come to her <gasps> funeral. And he was apparently mad with grief. And in the newspaper Paris Soir, which was the main newspaper at the time, her death garnered less notice than her son's marriage three years earlier. But she no. was so amazingly prolific. She left behind 478 paintings, 273 drawings, and 31 <laughs> etchings. I mean, what a force of life. And we should also mention the fact that, you know, she really started properly painting in about 1909 when she was nearly 50 years old. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, she was an extraordinary woman. I love her. I love her too. What do you think that her story and her life, you know, tells us about the modern Parisian woman? Well, you know, it was such an interesting time in Paris because, you know, there were there were women painting in Paris yeah. at the time. Discussing her influences later in life, Suzanne admitted that it was the palette of the Impressionists that really enchanted her. Yeah. And um, it's not hard to imagine. It was because that Impressionism was one of the few art movements that really did accommodate the talents of really brilliant women. You know, you've got Marie Bracamont, Mary Cassatt, Eva Gonzalez, Bertha Morrison, a lot of really brilliant artists who are painting alongside Impressionists. And of course, Impressionists, is a, it's a very loose term as well. But, you know, the great Griselda Pollock, you know, one of my great heroines. Absolutely. Mine too. She really writes um, at length about how Impressionism was one of the first gender-neutral art movements oh, wow. in, in modern art. And so you have got these brilliant women and the art schools do begin to open up to women being able to enroll. But of course, Suzanne was absolutely unique in that she didn't go to art school. She wasn't privileged. She wasn't taught by anyone. And she's really learning from the men who she is modelling for. And because she doesn't need a chaperone, she can run right and she can be really self-determined. And so in that sense, Paris was a really great place for this brilliant young woman to choose her own path in life. Absolutely. And what do you think she's taught you? Well, I mean, whenever you feel that life is a bit tough or that life is throwing things up at you and, oh, God, you know, I wish I had more support in this or that, you think, my God, you look at someone like Suzanne Valadon. You know, at a time when women had absolutely no political agency, they couldn't vote, they had no rights over their bodies, they had very little freedom. Look at what she achieved in her life with her, her artistic freedom, with her sexual freedom, with the boldness with which and the fun that she had. Yeah. She had such a zest for life. And, you know, I think she's an incredible role model. I love her. Absolutely. I think just the kind of bravery of her work. I mean, I love in your book, you follow on with Alice Neal after her. And I love that because thinking about women painting self-portraits much later on in life, you know, when we think of Alice Neal's self-portrait in her 80s, Suzanne also painted herself in her 60s. And that kind of just owning your portrait, your face, and even if you are nude and just kind of the fact that these women did this so early on in the 20th century is just really groundbreaking as well yeah absolutely and the sort of raw self-scrutiny yeah there's no apology 
in their art. Yeah, you know, there's no apology for being a woman. There's no apology yeah. that they're aging. There's no apology that their boobs are drooping or they've got a pot belly. Yeah. They are yeah. owning it and they are celebrating it and they are saying, this is me. This body has traveled well with me. So in your book, I mean, you cover such an incredible array of artists right from the 16th century to the 20th century. But are there any who were also working in Paris at the same time as Suzanne Valadon, who we can expect? Yes. In my book, I discuss two other artists who were making um, work in Paris around the same time. And what's really fascinating, I think, is that these three artists, so we've got Suzanne Valadon, then we've got Gwen John, the yes. brilliant Welsh artist, and then the amazing German artist, Paula Modersenbecker. Yeah. And so Gwen John and Paula Modersenbecker were born in 1876. So they're yep. 11 years younger than Suzanne. So they're rough contemporaries. Well, I think what is really fascinating is that women were really attracted to Paris at this time because there were places that they could study. It was relatively cheap. And of course, you know, there was an incredible energy in the streets. And so you've got Gwen John, who was Welsh and who is this extraordinary, the great sort of poet of stillness, I think, and of fragmented, quiet space. And she was the least bohemian of bohemians. I mean, she was like the absolute yeah. antithesis <laughs> of Suzanne Valadon. I mean, Gwen John's idea of a good night was to maybe go for a walk, <laughs> then go home to her cats and a cup of tea. And then we've got Paula Modison Becker, who was an extraordinary heartbreaking artist who basically kept trying to leave her husband in Vorpspeda in, in, in Germany and, and live in Paris because she was best friends with Rilke. But Paula Modison Becker, you know, who was in two exhibitions during her lifetime, one of which was really panned, very little support for her work, um, died young in childbirth. But she was really making work that was in the same league, to my mind, as Picasso and Matisse at the time, an amazing artist. So, yeah, I mean, there's no record of Paola, Suzanne and Gwen ever meeting. There's a play. Oh. Will someone write that yes. play? Yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and they're all exploring their, their own visual languages from, from very different directions, but they're all very radical in, in their own way. So, yeah, I'd love to time travel back to Paris around 1905 and, and do studio visits with all of them. Oh, me too. I'll, I'll, I, I would come with you, Okay, Jen. you can come too. <laughs> but I mean, what I love about all their work as well, there's such a kind of not only owning their image, but there's such a sort of sense of owning a room of one's own, as you would say. You know, they really sort of claim that space, which hadn't really been done before as well in art history. Absolutely. I mean, Paolo Modison Becker is sort of known as the first person to do an oil painting naked. It's interesting. There are all these very beautiful photographs of herself naked in her yes. studio, Paula Modisbeck. Yes. We don't know who took them. So she, in the same way that Suzanne was very lacking in any sentimentality about the aging process, <laughs> Paula Modisbecker paints herself again and again and again. And often you think this is out of necessity too, because she also was really broke. She couldn't often afford to employ models. And so this yeah. is why so many women excel at self-portraits, because they turn to themselves and their own bodies. And that's what Gwen John does as well. There are these remarkable drawings and, and watercolours of herself oh. naked in her small rooms. Amazing legacy that these women left behind. Absolutely. Well, I urge everybody to really get your book because I've just discovered so many amazing stories about these lives that I honestly just felt completely transported, especially at a time like this. It's wonderful to be transported then. But Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on. As does the Great Women Art Podcast, we do always ask our guests if perhaps you did have a studio visit with Suzanne or perhaps you went on a night out with her, mm. uh, which I'm sure would be even more fun. Would there be anything that you would have said to her or you would ask her? Oh, my goodness. 
You know, I'd love to know what jokes she told because I bet she yeah. was she was great at jokes. <laughs> Maybe we can go for a weekend and have Chateau and Leon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I would ask it, can I come stay with you for a while? <laughs> and then you'd have to say, can I bring my friend Katie? <laughs> yes, exactly. And Katie's coming too. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. Jennifer Hickey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, Katie, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I really, really appreciate it. And it's been great talking with you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 59th episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Jennifer Hickey on Suzanne Valadon. I'm absolutely in awe at Valadon's life and work and urge you all to look it up, as well as Hickey's tireless research on women artists. As always, I have linked through to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Winnie Simon. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.